This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a podcast about Black culture brought to you by Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. This summer, on a trip back home to Memphis, I stopped into a place I hadn't been since I was a kid, the National Civil Rights Museum. The museum is built into the back of the Lorraine Motel, where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And it's packed with artifacts and exhibits. I mean, this museum is insanely comprehensive. It chronicles our fight for rights all the way from slavery to today. And as I was walking through the exhibits, I was shocked at how much of the history I remembered from my trips to the museum as a kid. Until I got to the part of the museum that covered school desegregation. There, I came across an exhibit on the Memphis 13. This was a story I'd never heard before, not in school, and not at home. It was about 13 Black students who were on the front lines of Memphis's desegregation effort in the early 1960s. Across the South, cities had spent years struggling to integrate their school systems. But each time a new city brought Black children into a formerly whites-only high school, they were met with extreme violence. Mobs of white adults, police officers, and attack dogs. State and local police were unable to control a mob which reacted in bitter violence on learning that nine Negroes had entered the school as students. So in 1961, the Memphis chapter of the NAACP came up with a plan. Instead of using Black teenagers to desegregate Memphis schools, they would start with first graders. You heard that right, first graders, five- and six-year-old children. The thinking was that white first graders hadn't had enough time to learn racist ideas. So maybe they would be more welcoming to Black students and less violent than older kids. I grew up in Memphis City Schools, and the reality is the Memphis 13 made it possible for me to get a better education. So seeing this exhibit celebrate them was really meaningful. But I also felt like something was missing. The full experience of those five- and six-year-old kids. They made history, but what happened to them? I'm a father now, and my number one priority is to protect my child. And as grateful as I am personally to the Memphis 13, putting my daughter on the front lines of the desegregation fight, it just feels like too much of a risk. And I'm not alone. Most Black parents in a district were not willing to enroll their kids in the program. One of the few parents to volunteer was A.W. Willis Jr., a lawyer for the NAACP and one of the creators of the plan. 
he enrolled his five-year-old son at a white elementary school. His son's name was Michael Willis. He now goes by Menelik Fambi. He's 62 years old, and he still lives in Memphis. I recently called Fambi because I needed to know the full story of what happened to the Memphis 13, to understand what happens to a kid who makes that sacrifice. Fambi told me he was an eager little kid. His first experience in school was going to LaRose Elementary, an all-Black school near his house. He loved his classmates, and he says the teachers at LaRose treated him like a little prince. But then, on the morning of October 3rd, 1961, his parents didn't take him to LaRose. He had a new school, Bruce Elementary. One day, I'm going to LaRose, you know, with a bunch of smiling faces. Everyone looks like me, happy as a lark. Next day, I'm going across town with police protection, and nobody looks like me. So what happened next? Like, what was that first, what were those first few classes like? I just remember my first grade in school was living hell. My teacher, she reminded me of a devil, rest her soul. Mm. So I didn't like her, and, I'm, and I know she didn't like me. I mean, once I walked in the classroom and met the teacher, I, I'm, I'm sure I stopped smiling. This ain't going to work. How long do I have to be here? She set the tone that first day with her whole body language um, and indifference. She didn't want to be there. I was the first black child she'd ever taught in her life. I mean, her energy mm. was negative. That I do know. I can remember me and the teacher, I'm like, oh, no, this ain't the one. Wow. Once I realized where I, what I was going through, then it began to, the reality set in that this is not going to be a pleasant experience. Not that you should have had to, but with that first grade teacher, how much do you feel you were trying to gain her favor? I think it was like, I don't want to be here. You don't want me here. And, you know, I'm not able. No, I wasn't I trying. I mean, you know, I, I did very poorly in school up to a certain point. I mean, I think they gave me grades or wrote decent things on a report card. But it's, I don't think it really represented what I was going through. She was just simply too old and too set in her ways to really make an effort. I, I want to interrupt you a little bit because you said something that I, th- like, I think is really interesting. You mentioned that, like, you kind of struggled in school. And I, I'm thinking about that year in particular. You know, did you remember any of the ways that that you kind of got turned off to even just, like, the learning aspect yeah, of what I, you were there I, I used to hate to go to school. So I ain't trying to learn nothing. I ain't trying to read about Dick and Jane. I'm, I'm, I'm just yeah. not. I didn't want to hear about Dick and Jane because these folk are harassing me on the playground. So Dick and Jane became villains. I ain't trying to read about y'all. I really don't want to hear nothing about Sally, Spot, none of them folks. So I think I, you know, as a defense mechanism, I'm like, you know, I just, I ain't with this. Now, I tell people, quite honestly, I didn't get into a lot of physical fights. I was pushed a lot. I was shoved, you know, got spat on every now and then. I got called the N-word, you know, a lot. But it was never really, really that physical other than just being pushed, you know, down the steps, being pushed on the playground. You know, it's pretty physical. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. In a sense, it was. Uh, But I guess, you know, I kind of grinned and buried because I knew it was something my parents wanted me to do. I didn't say snitch a lot. I I just kind (laughs) of bit my tongue and say, "Okay, this is what little boys do. You know, we push each other. Um, because the administration position was if they didn't see it, in other words, if my first grade teacher didn't see it happen, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, it's my word against Billy Bob's word. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's 15 Billy Bob's and just one me. So yeah. I just have to kind of grin and bear it. 
I can remember playing dodgeball. And generally, it's like, hit the inward person. I was always the first one out. They throwing the ball, trying to knock my glasses off, throwing the ball in my groin. I mean, I was always generally the first one out of the group. And they, they all aimed at me. I can remember that very, very well. It was like hard. I'm like, damn, I don't, this ain't no fun. There were probably some decent folks in my class. But what I will say is that Billy and Tom and Dick and Harry were maybe my friend Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But on the playground, when they, when they, when they were their boys, oh, you know, you the N-word and you pushed and shoved and, you know, and whole nine yards. So in a sense, it was like dealing with a certain form of schizophrenia. I think it made me a lot more withdrawn. You know, I, I mean, it's not a bad job. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, flaunt that I was abused psychologically as a child. I mean, it's not a badge of honor. It caused me a lot of pain. your allies like even did you feel like you had somebody there who you were like this is the person I can count on the place I think I really look forward to the most was the cafeteria because guess what the cafeteria workers were black wow okay that is the only place I feel like I was safe you know I got good portions they smile not too much because they didn't want Miss Ann to, to, to accuse them of don't be giving that boy all that food you're going to lose your job yeah. but I can remember the cafeteria being a safe haven in other words the cafeteria workers they had a little clout because Billy Bob ain't going to act too much because he may get his, his portion cut short you know that was the place where I felt probably the safest because these ladies are they look like me and they smiling and I didn't necessarily talk to them, but all they did was smile. They gave me an extra cookie. They made sure my milk was cold. And that meant a lot to me. I, I can't imagine what it was like just feeling like, I mean, so much as a little kid is like, you you want attention at certain spots when you want it, but also you just don't want it. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. When you would go home, I, mean, I imagine you were t- telling your parents about this. Like, what? Oh, no, 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 no. You don't snitch, man. Uh, how's your day? It was all right. Are you sure? Well, no, but you know, I'm going to tell you this anyway, because I think this is what this is what I think you want to hear. Yeah. Uh, so you were holding all that in? Yes. Yes. One word we use on a psychological level, we call it internalized oppression. My big sister told me this, and I had no reason not to believe her. I don't remember. She said, and she told my mama that, Mama, you know, Mike is using the N-word a whole lot. You know, calling wow. me this and like, and this night, and, and just, you know, just talking to her or in conversation or talking to my younger brother, just using it because, again, that's what I'm being bombarded with. But as far as actually telling my mama and my daddy what a rotten time I had, I knew better. That's not what they wanted to hear. I'm curious, how much do you think your your dad had any reluctance about you being a part of, of, of this process in that way? But I don't think I don't think he had a choice in the matter. Mm. I mean, I think he believed in what he was doing to a certain degree. I think yeah. my mother actually felt I would get a better education. I think for my father, it was strictly a matter of principle. We are the court has ruled we are not gonna live or maintain two separate school systems. 
you mentioned you never really got a chance to talk to your parents about it. And I totally understand that, like, your interpretation is like they were doing their best. But was any of you at all, like, I mean, to be honest, kind of kind of resentful that it had to be you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hell yes. Um, I guess I feel, um, I love my mama, but I feel like, like, damn, mama, how come, you know, you didn't do a better job of taking care of me? You know, why you let the white folks treat me so bad? I didn't know what, what I had done. Mm-hmm. When I think by the same token, and in, in all due respect to her, I don't think she had a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, she was pregnant when this happened. So one, like I was, you know, just the, the only child in the house and my baby brother was born two years later. So she had gone with her life. And I think just like I internalized a lot, so did my mom. Yeah. You know, oh, well, I, I, yeah, he'll be all right. I just, you know, I, I pray for him. My old man, he just, you know, he just still kicking down doors, you know, you know, giving white folk hell and whole nine yards. So I think my mother, in some ways, as a defense mechanism, she had to keep some of her pain and anxiety inside, just like I did. And I can't imagine how much you might have felt like there was a spotlight on you all the time. Again, I didn't tell my parents because I figured it was something they wanted. You know, again, we didn't talk about this. My my parents had other battles to fight. Their lives, in other words, they're still fighting for civil rights and social justice in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, by the time I got to the third grade, my father was the first African-American to run for the state legislature, and he won. Yeah. Okay, by the time I got to this middle school, which is a little further, but he was the first African-American to run for mayor in the city of Memphis. So the shift, I mean, there were other things still going on other than me and my wounds, so to speak. But Fomby's wounds were real. And as he got older, he started to build layers of protection to keep people from opening them up again. So I began to question authority. It made me want to question everybody, and every, especially white folks. If y'all said do it, I need to know why, and I ain't sure. Um, and yeah, you need to tell me again. Yeah. You know, it's so, trust. Yeah, it, exactly. It stripped your ability to trust. Exactly. Each year, a few dozen more black students would integrate the white elementary and middle schools, but that wasn't enough to change Fomby's day-to-day experience. There was still discrimination, and violence, and distrust. Things only began to change for Fomby when he enrolled at Booker T. Washington, an all-black high school. It was a revelation. He found friends and teachers who supported him, and he began to actually like going to school. He spent his time reading books and learning more about black history. It gave him a sense of relief and control. I think that propelled me to be a history major. I wanted to find out. I remember when I got my master's from Ohio State in African-American studies, African-American, African studies, my mom said, rest of the soul, said, Fonby, what you gonna do with that degree? I said, Mama, I don't know, but at least I got it. Hmm. I felt I needed, in other words, I felt on a certain level, I need to go in and debunk the myths and the lies and the stereotypes that I had been taught, especially in my early years of life. I was gonna become an authority and I am to a certain degree, on the African and African-American experience. To me, it was part of my therapy. <laughs> so that I said, well, I ain't going to never make a whole lot of money. No way, but at least I'm going to have fun doing what it is I want to do. And nothing brought more joy to me than reading about black folks in the past and the trials and tribulations they endured, the greatness of which we came from. Even if he couldn't change history, he could still empower himself with a greater understanding of it. But deep down, 
the trauma never left. It was overwhelming. I mean, it just, it, it bothered me, you know, in ways that probably, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm here, my folks know me, my baby really know, you know, I'm a little touched. You know, I'm, I'm a peaceful person now, but I think going through that led me down some other paths. I'm going to be real with you. When Fombi said that he went down some other paths, I really wanted to understand everything that he went through. But he wouldn't get into too much detail. It was clear that just talking to me about this was still really difficult. It felt like opening up those old wounds again. But he would say that as he got older, he identified less and less as an American. He wanted to build a new identity for himself as an African living in America. So he began by changing his name from Michael Willis to Menelik Fambi. He became vegan and he pledged to call out racism when he saw it. Now Fambi, he set about trying to build a life. He stayed in Ohio, got a job, got married, and had three kids. But memories of his childhood still lingered. He says he was often angry and withdrawn. He struggled to maintain employment at times, and his marriage eventually fell apart. At this point, he says, he still hadn't talked to anyone about what happened to him at Bruce Elementary. That's more than 40 years of holding on to those painful experiences. I think the best way to illustrate just how much this weighed on Fombi is a conversation I had with his younger brother, Mark. Mark said that while his brother now lives a relatively happy and calm life, he got married again and now lives with his wife in Memphis. For decades, he just didn't know him as a person who smiled very much. Fombi says that the trauma he experienced touched everything, even his relationship with his three children. I think every Black parent at some point gears up to tell them about, the th- about how to explain racism to them. And, and you know, you usually you use the things that have happened to you as the thing that, um, that you illustrate that with. For you, like, what was the calculation of, like, whether or not to tell them, when to tell them, how to tell them? Like, how does that factor into how you talk to your kids? You know, I had them six months, six weeks for the summer. I get them half, half the Christmas break, spring break. One of the first things we did was we watched Malcolm X and got a vegetarian pizza. It became a rite of passage. I had my children watch Eyes on the Prize probably when they were too young to really fully grasp. In other mm-hmm. words, I never taught them to hate, but I want them to be prepared. Mm. I told my sons, I said, you know, don't run from the policeman, but you got a target on your back. Mm-hmm. My daughter, not only do you have to deal with racism, you got to deal with sexism. So you got to work three times as hard just to break even. Mm-hmm. So I tried consciously to prepare them to deal with this, this very white supremacist society we live in, but I still did not use my experience. I used everything but that. Mm-hmm. And so when it did come time to tell them how to, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you even start that conversation? Well, like, they were, I think by then they were old enough to understand. I think, the, you know, my, my daughter said, well, it's like, Baba, they always call me Baba. I was like, now we understand. <laughs> you know, they had seen Malcolm X a thousand times. They had watched Eyes on the Prize. They knew about Emmett Till. They knew about Fred Hampton and all, and everything in between. So when they, when they found out that this happened to their father at a young age, I think they began to put it into context. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, now we, now we get it. Okay, I, we understand, Baba. You know, you, you good. You good. You know, we love you just the same. But 
now it makes a little more sense. If you're talking about this story, you're talking about what happened to you, and there's a piece of it that you're like, look, this story is not complete unless you also know this. Right, right. What what is that? Well, I think I mean I think it's just the the the, the pain that we as children endured. You know, the the personal sacrifices we made. So I don't know all the 13 I see them. We could get maybe once a year. And, you know, some of our stories are different. And all due respect, I got some 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 classmates, you know, who, I mean, this was the highlight of their life. And I'm not judging. You know, they can talk about this every day if you ask them to. Yeah. You know, everybody's different. But I think, you know, and... There have been certain points um, a couple of years ago. I pretty much shut down. I said, I don't want to talk about Memphis 13 no more. Mm. Because every time I talk about it, no matter, and I realize it's a story that needs to be told, but I'm reliving some some dark moments in my life. Yeah. You know, so now my, I got my children are grown. They're dealing with things. I got, you know, half-grown grandchildren. You know, my wife, we're both retired. You know, we, we so it's like this is not, and my life didn't just stop in the first grade, mm-hmm. other things happened. And for me, it was just, it was the beginning of something, not necessarily the end. Yeah. I guess like, this is a, this I, I don't even know how to really ask this question. Cause like, if I'm being honest with you, a part of, a part, like your, your act of going to that school, I mean, I, frankly, it pay, there's a clear line between that and and me going to elementary school, you know, I mm-hmm. went to uh, I went to Goodlit. Um, was like my first elementary oh, school. Oh wow, <laughs> we couldn't even go out there back then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean seriously. And and so like when I saw that in the museum, it was really powerful for me. But I could immediately kind of get an get an idea. Obviously, I didn't know. Like, yeah, I could get yeah, an idea yeah. that like that's a really tough position to put. Yeah to put kids that young in, right? And I think what I'll say to that is it needed to happen. We could not continue to maintain two separate school systems, even if they were equal, okay? So I understand on a very intellectual level the need to desegregate American society. Yeah. You know, I understand that. I'm actually able to live where I want to live, you know, send my kids to the best schools that I, that I can get them into without being, you know, taunted and treated like a second-class citizen. Even on a historical, personal level, I understand and respect that. But as a child, as a human being with a, with a heart and a spirit, it's like, why me? It had to happen. And, 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 and in conflict and struggle, Unfortunately, there are going to be some casualties along the way. You know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the four little girls, Megar Evers, Ida B. Wells, W.B. Du Bois. The list is endless. You know, freedom ain't free. When most folks back home talk about the Memphis 13, it's clear they consider the project a success. At the time, President John F. Kennedy actually commended the city for toppling segregation without violence. But there was violence. Lots of it. Talking to Fomby, I realized some of the most painful violence is psychological. And the fact that we still don't recognize that makes me worried. 
Just this month, I was visiting potential schools for my daughter, Eve. She starts kindergarten soon. In New York City, where we live, the school system is the most segregated in the country. And that means I'm going to have to work really hard to make sure my daughter not only goes to a great school, but a diverse one. One where she'll see more than a handful of black kids or white kids. It's been almost 60 years since the Memphis 13. 60 years since Fonby gave up parts of his childhood to end school segregation. And we're still fighting still putting black and brown kids on the front lines of progress. And as I look at the joy my daughter Eve has for learning, I find myself thinking, when exactly is that progress going to come? The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kate Parkinson-Morgan, and Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We are edited by Emmanuel Berry and Jorge Juss. Fact-checking by Max Gibson. The show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music credits, visit our website, gimletmedia.com slash The Nod. We'll also include more information on where you can learn more about the Memphis 13.